I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guests are Phil and Aaron Stead, the author and illustrator of the children's book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Phil and Aaron are married, and this is their first book together. A Sick Day for Amos McGee was awarded one of the best illustrated children's books by the New York Times in 2010 and received the Caldecott Medal, which annually honors artists of the most distinguished children's books in the United States. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for for having us. How did you choose the name Amos for the central character for the book? Growing up, I had to attend a lot of Sunday school, uh, probably enough to get me through the rest of my life. And I always had a thing for the names of all the minor prophets, so the back half of the Old Testament. And I really loved the name Amos for some reason. It wasn't until well after the book was published that I realized that subconsciously Amos came from somewhere else. Uh, Since I was 10 or 11 years old, I've had a little... Uh, toy monkey that I got at the Washington National Zoo uh, hanging from my lamp at my drawing desk. And as a nine-year-old or ten-year-old, however old I was, I I named this monkey Amos. <laughs> so I had some subconscious connection between the name Amos and the zoo. Are you familiar with the book Amos and Boris by William Steig? Yes. I love William Steig. I feel like I'm copying him a lot. <laughs> and I do absolutely love Amos and Boris. How did you both meet each other? Uh, Phil and I met when I was 16. I had just turned 16, and Phil was about to graduate high school. And uh, we met in the same art room, although we were taking two different classes. And Phil ended up skipping uh, his class almost every day just to try to talk to me. (laughs) Um, But I was too shy to talk to him. So uh, it took him a a few months, but I finally started speaking back. I have to say, I I did feel sort of a sense of urgency that I'm not sure if I've ever felt in my life since that I had to get to know this person before uh, leaving. And I didn't make it easy. It's funny, and I'm not sure if everyone believes me when I say it, but actually I walked past her and I was sort of shocked at uh, the level of accomplishment of the drawing she was working on. And and that's really all it was. I sat down, and anyone that can draw that well is worth getting to know. Hmm. And uh, Aaron is not the easiest person to get to know. I've I've read on your (laughs) blog that it takes uh, three years for you to make a friend. It does. I think it takes me about three years to to really accept that um, somebody else wants to be my friend. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really my problem, not not anybody else's. Where did where does your shyness come from? I think kids are born with it. Actually, mm-hmm. I um, I recently met a shy infant, and I felt like I understood this this <laughs> little baby who came out with its own personality. And um, my my mom was just telling me that I was the same way. What does a shy infant look like? M- Mom's laugh. That's it. Everybody else gets tears, and and I think I understand that. And to what degree did you choose a career in illustration or art because of your shyness or introvert, introverted tendencies, oh, if at all. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't think that had much to do with it, um, except that I think I left the idea of having a career with illustration because of my shyness. So it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah, I think that um, it takes a lot of guts to start um, a career as an illustrator, and I, I just came to the conclusion that I didn't have it. Because you thought you you weren't going to be an illustrator, how did you become an illustrator? How did this happen? Uh, Well, I I started out thinking that I was going to be an illustrator uh, when I left for art school. And then I sort of lost my way and uh, 
studied painting, and it, and I studied very serious painting, and I actually think that it, it made me a better artist. But by the time I was f- getting towards the end of art school, I was beginning to feel dishonest about what I was making, and I had a real crisis of confidence that was completely self-inflicted. It had nothing to do with my performance or uh, anything else. It wasn't an ability thing or um, that I felt like I wasn't cutting it compared to my peers. It was that 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 both halves of me, the one that's that's scared and, and introverted and the one that's, that's very stubborn, um, they didn't keep up with each other and the stubbornness kind of walked out the door. So it took me a long time to get that back. I feel like I have it back a little now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and getting, getting that back for Aaron was sort of my life mission for, yeah. for three years. Yeah. I did realize, though, that I loved children's books and that I just couldn't shake them. I'm, as much as I had decided I wasn't an artist anymore, um, I gave up drawing for three years. I couldn't leave kids' books. It was my, my favorite thing. It was it was like home to me. So um, I worked uh, selling children's books for a long time, and then I got my foot in the door with publishing, and I thought that that was going to be my career path, that I was going to work in children's publishing for um, forever. Yeah, I think I think art school really prepares you for the business mm-hmm. of uh, the artistic life, but if you really, really want to be a children's book illustrator, 90% of your, uh, your education is probably going to come from either a bookstore or a library. Uh, in Aaron's case, it came as a bookseller. In my case, it came from weekly or twice-weekly visits to a ramshackle store in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, called Kaleidoscope Books, which is kind of looks like your your crazy neighbor's garage. But probably, if you're if you're willing to sort through the dust and in and the stacks, you'll find one of the finest collections of vintage children's books anywhere in the country, maybe. And for you, Aaron, you experienced selling children's books at a place called Books of Wonder yes. in New York City. What what children's books were influential on both of you, whether it was growing up or leading to a sick day for Amos McGee. When I was kid, I when I was a kid, my mother never took my picture books off my shelf, no matter how old I got, and that I think was really important for me. I think it's a misconception that we should be taking them off when a kid starts first grade or second grade. Um, there's always something to look at in them. The art f- can be quite sophisticated, so you can even stare at that if the story is is simple by the time you're ten. So I I had the benefit of always having the snowy day on my shelf and uh, Where the Wild Things Are on my shelf and all of the classics. And I'm not sure how it was for you, but I know that you never really left Roald Dahl's side. Yeah. <laughs> a- it's also a different question to ask what inspired you as a kid and what inspires you as an, as an adult, and yeah. only a few really cross uh, that, that boundary between the two. Um, William Steig is huge for me. Uh, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble was my favorite, favorite, favorite story as a kid. Also, Roald Dahl, the writing of Roald Dahl really spoke to me as a kid and still does, specifically when paired with the illustrations of Quentin Blake. And also James Marshall, yeah. um, George, George and Martha, author of George and Martha. He had this way of communicating so simply uh, and so sincerely without being trite, uh, without talking down to children, while still being funny. Um, and being funny is a lot harder. Being funny is very difficult because there's a... There's a big difference between being silly and being funny in a children's book. And I've always really admired the authors that can do um, funny without 
being silly. It's interesting you say that because before I was a parent, I'm not sure I got that nuance. Um, but as a parent, it's frustrating when I find books are just being silly and not respecting the intelligence of a child. How do you think you've dis- you discerned that? I think that we haven't forgotten what it's like to be a child. It's a misconception to think that life is easier when you're two than it is when you're you're 30 or 40 or 70. People are always telling you what to do. You might be crying once a day. And if you were crying once a day, I, Daniel Handler, who's the author of Lemony Snicket, said if you in an interview once that if you were crying once a day as an adult, you know, that would be the worst day of your or the worst week of your life and I think when you're two or three or four you don't often get to feel independent and when you do it's so important Um, and that's one of the things I love about actually uh, picture books is that once you put it in their hands it it can be theirs. You you mentioned your parents Mm -hmm. before how your mother never took the picture books away as Mm -hmm. you got older. What did your parents do Erin? Uh, my mom was a bookkeeper who works for my dad's business, uh, which is an insurance agency. So they are not artists. In fact, my mom, when she sees a blank piece of paper at my drawing table, gets very nervous to the point of panicking. When I was lo- trying to think about art schools, she was very nervous about it. And I think was up to maybe a couple of months ago. <laughs> I think now she's really decided that it's it's all right. Yeah, it's I think because the Caldecott was something that she definitely understood. I think the rest of it, um, it was a difficult. You know, it's not necessarily a nine to five job when I'm I'm working at, at home at my desk. Had it been up to her, what would you have been professionally? A veterinarian, <laughs> absolutely. How about how, <laughs> how about you, Phil? What did your parents do? Well, uh, for most of my life, both of my parents worked in public education. They both have master's degrees in music, and so there is a creative side to both of them. And I'm definitely not one of those stories um, of a person whose parents tried to veer them away from art school. I think it was understood probably from the time I was four or five years old that that was going to be the direction I was going to go, which was hugely valuable to me and I think was an enormous part of why I am able to function confidently. Just growing up expecting that this will be what I do, I think, is an enormous asset. Incidentally, you talk about art school, and you've mentioned to me before how adults learn how to not draw as they get older. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Everyone draws as a very small child. Uh, No one's afraid to smear finger paint around on the kitchen table. It's probably right around first grade where we start to learn that certain kids have a drafting ability. It's a, sort of a rudimentary drafting ability, but certain kids are better than others at you know, describing a, a human shape or the shape of an animal. I think in that environment, certain kids will shut down and not want to try anymore. And then they'll learn tricks. They'll learn how to, to draw a stick figure instead of drawing a human form the way that they would naturally want to do it. Uh, they draw... Uh, a bird by making uh, the shape of an M. And we learn these tricks and they almost, it stops becoming drawing and just becomes symbol making. And then shortly after that, even symbol making, I think, falls away until we're left with just a handful of artists in every classroom. When an adult teaches a kid a trick, like like a stick figure, you, you might be taking something away from them. And, and you're taking away 
an entire step of drawing, which is the see the seeing part. Yeah. Uh, I had a teacher in high school who explained it like this. He said, "If you can, if you can see something and you can write your name, you have the dexterity to write your name. Then you can draw anything. It's really just a matter of time and trial and error. Uh, but we take away that seeing component really, really early, uh, either from ourselves or we have uh, an authority figure." sort of explain to us that we shouldn't be doing that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guests are Phil and Aaron Stead, the author and illustrator of A Sick Day for Amos McGee. In addition to writing children's books, Phil also creates music. Here's a sample of his work. We'll hear more from Aaron and Phil coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guests are Phil and Aaron Stead, the author and illustrator of the children's book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Phil and Aaron are married, and this is their first book together. A Sick Day for Amos McGee was awarded one of the best illustrated children's books by the New York Times in 2010 and received the Caldecott Medal, which annually honors artists of the most distinguished children's books in the United States. Prior to launching A Sick Day for Amos <laughs> McGee, uh, you, Aaron, were working at HarperCollins as an assistant to the creative director, at, and this was after working at Books of Wonder, which is a bookstore in New York City. Mm-hmm. And you, Phil, were an author and illustrator. Your first book is Cream Tuna Fish and Peas on Toast. How was A Sick Day for Amos McGee born? Okay, so Aaron was working in publishing. I, for several years at that point, had been trying to get Aaron to draw again. Uh, She had taken almost three years completely off from drawing. This was right around the start of 2007. Uh, At that time, she had just completed a beautiful drawing, and it was a drawing of an old man and an elephant. And it was asked for specifically by a a very supportive friend. And uh, so it was almost like I was given an assignment, so I felt like I had to complete it. Who was the friend? Uh, his name is Josh. He's an acupuncturist. And he, uh, I would go to him to help with my anxiety at the time, which was um, worse even than, than it is now. So he was incredibly helpful, but thought that in order to round myself off and really be the person I'm supposed to be, I was supposed to draw. Did the man look like anybody whom you drew with that elephant? No. Um, I always drew, I, I tend to like drawing old people. And I love drawing animals. I think that the relationship, I, I, I used to like drawing an emotional connection that was vague. I, I think to further go down that tangent just for a moment, uh, the last body of work that Aaron had made before this moment uh, was three years earlier uh, for a, a gallery show that I had put together in Detroit uh, in a semi-abandoned warehouse. And there were three of us all creating artwork around the theme of circus. And all of Aaron's work was, it was beautiful pencil drawings, very delicately done, of older circus folk interacting with their animal friends. And it was really sort of the prototypical work for what would later become uh, Amos McGee. And that was definitely the work I had in mind uh, when I sat down to write Amos for Aaron. So jumping ahead, our editor, my editor, Neil Porter, heard from a friend that Aaron was also an artist. He emailed me one day and said, is this true? Is Erin also an artist? And I said, yes, but she'll probably never show you anything. Uh, but 
here's one drawing that she's done. So I scanned that elephant and the old man. I sent it off to him, and he instantly wrote back and said, how can we convince her to do a book? At the time, I was working at HarperCollins, and I was getting these art submissions while Philip was trying to be an, uh, an illustrator in his own right, and I would be throwing away or... Um, you know, a lot of people's postcards or just deciding that they weren't right for the publisher. And 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 that was sad for me. And then I would come home and sort of encourage Phil anyways, even though it was, it was you know, uh, the, I was doing something completely the opposite um, at my own job. When Neil Porter asked you, Phil, does Aaron draw? And, and you showed him this picture of this old man and this elephant. And he said, you know, can she do this? Can she do a book? What was your visceral feeling? Because on the one hand, you're the husband and you want to support her. But on the other hand, you selfishly are also an illustrator. How did you feel about your not being the illustrator of this next book? I was th- sort of thrilled at the opportunity to just have Aaron be drawing again. I could have illustrated Amos, perhaps, if Aaron wasn't willing to do it, but I, there's no way that I could have done it the way she did it, which was perfect for the story. And in this case, in A Sick Day for Amos McGee, it seems like the illustration was present before the story was present. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, so Aaron came home from work that day, the day I had, I had sent the scan t- uh, to Neil Porter, and she opened the door and I said, don't be mad. Uh, <laughs> too Too late. So I knew that Aaron wouldn't say no to the opportunity of making a book. Um, It's just too precious a moment and not one that comes around often enough. Um, It it literally could have been a a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But I also knew that if I didn't get a story written for her soon, that it would give an opportunity for her to back out of the situation. So I normally don't sit down thinking I'm going to write a story, but this was the one time I did. So I sat down, and I I knew I needed a story quickly, so I just asked myself, what would Aaron be great at illustrating? And that's how Amos was born. So it became, it didn't start with an arc, it started scene by scene. So it started with an old man playing chess with an elephant, which I thought was very funny. And then it was an old man running a race with a tortoise, and an old man helping a rhinoceros who had a runny nose. And it built from there. And Soon we had the first half of the story, you know, Amos's time at the zoo, his sort of special moments with each character, and then all we needed was a uh, a conflict. So it was just what would happen if Amos couldn't come to the zoo one day, and that was how Amos was born. Do the animals stand for people you know in your lives? No. Yeah. Although Aaron definitely is the penguin. I am the penguin, and I and then also on a, whenever I draw, um, I'm, I'm really drawing parts of myself. You mentioned that you have a penchant towards drawing old people. Mm -hmm. Is it because you just think you're good at it, you know, (laughs) like the wrinkles, or because there's some some type of deeper personality component to it? Yeah, I think it's because they represented, on on paper, they represented a more complicated person with stories um, behind them. I tend to study the way uh, things move and I think old people, um, a lot of times when they're uh, shuffling down the street, um, depending on their age. I, I know that eventually if I continue to be an illustrator, I am going to have hunched shoulders because I, I, I sit over a desk all day. I think that drawing an old person for me implied that uh, there were more complicated things behind that. that there drawing. was some concern, too, uh, prior to the publication of Amos that 
it would be unusual to have a main character for a children's book who was an elderly man and have no children in the book whatsoever. There are no children, child characters. In some ways, the animals are like children, um, but there are no children in the story. Aaron and I never really saw that as a problem, and mm-hmm. luckily our editor didn't either. Um, but it is sort of a commonly held belief that that could be a problem. And the collaboration, uh, did you always want to work on a project together, or was this just an accident? When we were first dating, a huge influence for us was Alison Martin Provinson, who are illustrators and authors. Um, they they won the Caldecott. And I think they were the first first couple um, that we came across where we thought, oh, we can do this. We, we can do this together. Yeah, I, I love working together. And like I said, I love that I can make a story specifically for her that mm-hmm. I could never make for myself. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guests are Phil and Aaron Stead, the author and illustrator of the children's book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Your beginning was a lucky one to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were asked to write a book mm-hmm. uh, or to illustrate a book. Um, talk to me about the details of your day and your life during this period when you're putting the book together. Oh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. In order for me to, to feel like I had enough time to actually complete the book, I felt like I had to take the leap and leave my 9 to 5. So we ended up uh, taking a large pay cut and moving upstate in order to... We were living in Brooklyn at the time, and we moved upstate in order to cut our rent in half. By the way, you moved five times during the course of making the book. Yeah. Yeah, I, there were several ups and downs over the course of about 18 months. <laughs> uh, yeah, we ended up upstate. We were in one house for a month, and then we were in another house for a few more months, and... And both houses were kind of disasters. And we ended up being sort of miserable up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sort of on a whim, we were hoping to move back to New York City, but we just could not find a place we could afford. So we we told ourselves, let's move back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, just for for a few weeks. I knew an open apartment that cost next to nothing. We were going to treat it as like a little retreat, a little vacation. Uh, We ended up back in Ann Arbor, and we... We haven't moved, we haven't moved back, back to New yeah. York. So why were you miserable in upstate? The first house we moved into had a mold problem, and Philip is a collage artist, and we both work with paper, and I think we were really afraid that it was going to invade our artwork, and it was an awful place. I um, had literal nightmares at yeah. night <laughs> about artwork being devoured by mold. Uh, I think that we were really used to spending a lot of time together, more so than even... I guess, normal couples. And so we thought that, well, we have the two of us. That's who we spend all of our time with anyways. We'll be fine uh, isolated on a a couple of acres in the middle of the mountains. Yeah, we moved to a town uh, that had 49 people. It was 51 people once we moved in, plus our dog. And we really thought that it was just going to be like like an extended vacation. Uh, We learned very, very quickly that we're the types of people that really need to speak to other humans every day. Not necessarily people that need to... Uh, have close friends around all the time, but it's nice to just go someplace and say, I'd like a small cup of coffee, please. Uh, Cream, no sugar. You talked before about uh, not being able to afford Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and moving five times. What are the economics of children's publishing? They're sort of complicated. Yeah. (laughs) When you're first starting out, um, you get paid very, very little to do a book. You get paid what's called an advance. And, and what is the typical advance for a early think, illustrator? Think author? less than what a private school, elementary school teacher would make. And in, in the case of Amos, 
that was over the course of 18 months. So, so we're you, talking in the 30 grand area. Oh, no. We're talking less than that. Less than that. <laughs> Private school teacher in the Midwest. <laughs> so we're thinking more like 20. Yeah, right. And then you, you don't see another dime for that book until royalties start to show up. If you're the author and the illustrator, you might make 10% of every copy sold. So if a book costs $17, you'll make $1.70 once every time the book is sold. But that's not until the publisher has already made up at least the $20,000 that they paid you in advance. Most books never make up that advance. Especially debut books. And at what point when you were working on the book together and things started to come together, did you say, wow, you know, this has potential? You know, I think there's two different things that happen. I think when you're making the book um, and you're alone and in that bubble where it's just you and the book, or in my case, it's me and Phil and the, and the book, um, you have to think to yourself, this is the best book. I'm making the best book I can possibly make. And then and then you have a year after turning in the art where the book goes through all of the um, the proof processing where you don't hear anything. That's the time where you, you really have given up on the book. Where you've really decided that it, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. And <laughs> we, were, we were definitely very surprised that there were, there were very early signs that Amos was doing well. Uh, it had sold out of its first printing before it had ever reached the bookshelves. It was sold internationally to other publishers before the release date, which my editor said to us at the time uh, he had never experienced before. Hmm. Um, and that was that was something. I think that was one of our first signs that something was happening. And I think we can say honestly that we we definitely never suspected that the book would be published in other languages. And we can prove that yeah. <laughs> because Aaron, uh, throughout the artwork, uh, there are several pieces of artwork that are done in English. So it says City Zoo and it's done in English. And typically, if you're expecting a book to be translated, you'll do that as a separate piece of artwork so that... If it's going to be uh, published in another language, they have an easier time extracting that text and then putting in the correct text. Can you describe for me uh, the 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 moment and the, the the emotional reaction when you found out about the Caldecott Medal or becoming uh, awarded or being awarded the best illustrated children's book in the New York Times? Do you remember those moments? Y- yes, my editor called me and said that um, I wanted to let you know that that you've been selected as one of the best illustrated books in the New York Times, which for us was a really big deal. I think that that's something that we really wanted. And then in January, the Caldecott announced. Well, and for me, uh, loving books as much as I do was, I mean, it's the holy grail. It, it's something that you hope to to get an honor maybe once in your life. And I don't think I've accepted it yet. But they don't tell there's not a nomination list or anything there's nothing that that warns you that this is that you're eligible that this might happen they just call you in the morning the day that it's announced yeah we were not we were not prepared for that phone no, call i not. was getting ready to take the dog for a walk uh, i had i had to pick up some milk and some donuts that morning no no book no debut book had ever won a caldecott before a sick day for amos so there, there was plenty of evidence that we didn't need to be concerned about this. Do you listen to music when you're working? I, I do, and Phil does, and I think that um, sometimes we're on the, a different, we're in a different mood. Uh, also, I listen to a lot of radio, and we listen to uh, baseball. Sometimes, if we have to pick music, we can't do it together because I'm just as likely likely to listen to 
Philip Glass as I am to listen to ACDC? A lot of times, I'll if I feel like I'm not focusing enough, I'll have to listen to sometimes one or two songs on repeat so that I don't pay attention to time, the time that's passing, and I just am able to sit there at my desk and sort of forget what's happening on the outside. What are world. some of those uh, one or two songs? Probably the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to listen to soundtracks a lot because I think that soundtracks and or scores for for movies in a lot of ways is like illustration. Jan Tiersen, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I listen to Jan Tiersen a lot. The, the soundtracks of uh, Amelie and Goodbye Lennon. Going back to the art of the book, mm-hmm. I noticed the blanket for Amos looks kind of has a, a peacock motif. Mm-hmm. What Good is catch. that? What is that motif? Uh, it is a it's a take on a peacock feather. Amos McGee had. The book has a very limited color palette that I chose. There's this color in there that we call blanket blue because it's the same color as the blanket, but it's also the color of the stove, and it's the color of the end papers of the book. Um, But the peacock feather is this idea of love with his friends. Um, It's not, you know, an adult type of love, but it was just my interpretation of of um, this idea that his friends have come to see him, and, and so this blanket was just representing to me the idea of his blossoming like joy that his friends were there and the number five bus uh where did did you just pick number five out of the blue or did you i have a background in graphic design so i I have a real love for letter forms and number forms and the number five is just such a delicious number especially if it's it's created in the right typeface Mm. it was fun to draw yeah. Amos lives on the block that we lived in in brooklyn except that his little house actually does not exist (laughs) <laughs> on our block, but we lived in um, in number 11, fourth place. And it looks like the brownstone that we lived in. Yeah. In researching uh, for, for this interview, I was going through some of uh, the reviews, and one mother said that this book is like a slow-cooked project. <laughs> and that resonated with me. It seems like it was a very painstaking process. The whole book was, though, we, uh, Philip is a designer, and the way we turn in a book and the way we start a project is we think about every corner of every page. So the book is designed by Phil with help from me. Yeah, I can, I, I can say that it, it didn't occur to me not to be the designer of the book as well. I was sort of naive about that going into bookmaking. Um, but the more typical way that a book is made is that an illustrator illustrates, the writer writes, then you pass it off to the publisher, and they've got their own design staff that designs it as well. Uh, but when Aaron and I present a book... Literally every corner has been thought about and yeah. dealt with by us, and we, we almost provide a, a rubric for then how to produce the book. There's definitely a, a meticulous nature to this book. How do you live your personal life? Is there a similarity there? Like, what does your your house look like? Like the, the, the teacups that you choose mm-hmm. and your bedding that you choose and your and your cabinets. Uh, what what level of attention is given to those things? Oh, that that's an inter- interesting question. Um I actually think a, a lot of care gets taken to to what we choose to live around. Uh, I've become sort of the, the collector of all the artifacts from my family that my family no longer wants. So the radio we listen to the, to the Detroit Tigers on is a 1950s uh, box radio with a beautiful sound to it. Mm-hmm. I draw on a huge table from the 40s. Yeah, no. we, we, have, we just have a real love for old things. Mm-hmm. And we didn't self-consciously want Amos to look old, the, the book Amos to look old, but that came out, I think, just as a natural extension of what our aesthetic is. Amos is a character that has an appreciation for objects that are beautiful, and I think, hopefully, that's Aaron and I are the same way. Well, thank you both very much for joining us. 
Thank you for having us. My guests have been Phil and Aaron Stead, the author and illustrator of the children's book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Coming up, we'll meet Connie Duckworth, founder of Arzu, an organization that provides economic empowerment to women in Afghanistan. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. Thank you.